Raisin in the Sun was a play written by Lorian Hansberry and first performed in 1959. As a young girl, Lorian experienced redlining, or the process by which large banks and individuals deny housing to minority groups. This is what inspired her work. In the play, Mama, one of the main characters, also experienced redlining. About the process, she says, the houses they put up for colored in them areas way out all seem to cost twice as much as their houses. I did the best I could. Her observation on these houses is a way in which redlining was identified by the family. It shows how minorities were being forced to pay much more for housing by the government strictly as a result of the color of their skin. Although redlining was legally outlawed under the Fair Housing Act of 1968, this podcast will be discussing the phenomenon of redlining and the long-lasting effects it has had on our communities today. The effects of redlining have and will continue to be long-lasting. This is seen particularly in the in three areas, poverty, crime, and education. Today, I will be focusing on the relationship between redlining and poverty levels. Redlining and poverty are connected in more ways than one might expect them to. Redlining, caused by structural racism, is and its effects have continued throughout history, even if we haven't exactly realized it yet. Poverty is one of the most common ways that shows how those negative how those negatively impacted by redlining in the past continue to experience similar situations today. A piece written by Elizabeth Eisenhower of of the Department of Geography reads, Over the past 100 years, ethnic minorities and the poor have become increasingly concentrated and isolated in low-income urban neighborhoods. What Eisenhower means here is due to the major events in history such as redlining, lasting effects are still prominent in in today's society. More specifically, Redlining has led to certain areas and ethnic minorities that were redlined in the past experiencing this poverty today. One specific area of redlining is called supermarket redlining, which is when in the 1980s, cities started having more more store options than closings, and the number of supermarkets outside cities declined. Therefore, people that lived in areas of higher poverty did not even have did not even have easy access to many resources. This trend has continued into modern society, leaving the poor with the same limited options. Another example of how people that live in lower income areas are still affected by redlining today is how much more African Americans specifically were and are affected by it. Statistically, homeowners in redlined neighborhoods gained 52% or $212,023 less in personal wealth over the past 40 years than, than white neighborhoods. According to an article by author Brenda, Brenda Richardson in Real Estate, black homeowners are nearly five times more likely to own, a, to own in a formerly red-line neighborhood than in a green-line neighborhood, resulting in diminished home equ- equity and overall economic inequality for black families. Richardson Richardson explains how the same areas that were redlined in the past are more likely to include residents that are African-American. 
Urban areas with large African-American populations were more likely to be redlined in the past, and those same areas continue to have lower incomes than areas with more, re- with more white residents. Poverty levels are higher with African-American homeowners, along with other minority groups than white families due to redlining in, and in the systematic, systematic racism including, included in redlining. On top of minority groups being extremely affected by redlining in terms of poverty, families living in the same areas that were redlined in the past tend to have more health problems than others. One specific example of this is asthma. Reports from the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America states that poverty plays a major role in developing asthma. They even list the specific effects of poverty that impact asthma levels. This can be because of poor rental housing, location near highways, and not being able to pay for treatments and more. Therefore, those who live in lower income areas that were redlined in the past are more greatly affected in terms of poor health as well as poor income. These examples of supermarket redlining, systematic racism, and medical diagnostics further explains how redlining has so greatly affected society today. They give us just a quick insight into the racial and medical issues faced. Like redlining and poverty, redlining and crime are intrinsically related. In many ways, this is due to structural racism, which, according to an article from the American Press, is defined as a system of public policies, institutional practices, cultural representations, and other norms that work in reinforcing ways to perpetuate racial inequality. Structural racism is the cause for many policies, like redlining, Today we see how the continued reign of structural racism has impacted crime rates in impoverished areas and brought about mass incarceration in America. A special report from the U.S. Department of Justice in 2014 concluded that persons living in poverty poor households at or below the federal poverty level had more than double the rate of violent victimization within their household as persons in high-income households. Violent victimization refers to crimes such as rape, sexual assault, or personal robbery and assault. 51% of victims from these poor households report the crime compared to the 45% from high-income households. It was noted that the pattern between rates of violent victimization for both whites and blacks was consistent across poverty levels. However, it should be noted that according to the U.S. Census Bureau in 2011, 25.8% of black Americans were living in poverty, compared to just the 11.6% of white Americans. This then shows the adverse effects of redlining, as crime in impoverished areas is more often higher than in wealthier areas. Redlining was the decisive choice by governments and individuals to constrict people of color to certain areas by withholding opportunities for fairer housing. This is a cause for many of the poor boroughs that we see in urban cities, and thus a cause for higher household crimes and victimization rates.
Redlining does not end at crime alone. Redlining and the system of structural racism that cause such policies is also a contributing factor of America's mass incarceration rates, particularly for black individuals. A study done by the Sentencing Project, an advocacy center working to address racial disparities in the criminal justice system, found that black individuals are incarcerated five times as much as white individuals across the U.S. In 1979, Alfred Bolston studied the cause of such racial disparity in prisons. He looked at racial differences in arrests compared to prison demographics and found that 80 80 to 76 percent of the disparity was explained by these rates. However, the remaining 20 percent was left unexplained, especially in the area of drug arrests. Nearly half of this 20 percent was due to prisoners who had been convicted of drug crimes. An overall conclusion, then, is that a sizable portion of racial disparities in prison cannot be explained by criminal offending, which then points to an unfairness in our criminal justice system system, and a lot of unanswered questions, like could part of this disparity be because people of color are unable to afford attorneys, or were um, were these arrests brought about for just causes, or were they based on appearance alone? These questions are stemmed in structural racism, just like redlining. These two examples have been just a brief overview of the way that redlining is closely connected to the modern issue of race that we see today, especially in areas such as prison reform and criminal justice. Another important aspect of redlining that should be put into context is educational redlining. One real-world example of this at work is the fact that real estate websites now contract with sites like Great Schools, which give schools ratings that attempt to indicate their excellence, mediocrity, or failure. They use achievement data and little expertise to rate schools on a 10-point scale, classifying them as green, yellow, or red. Many middle-class families take these websites' words for it and choose schools outside of the neighborhood, leaving local schools with a dwindling number of students at at risk for closure. The act of labeling these entire communities as red is distressingly similar to the mortgage redlining practices of the recent past, which were declared illegal with the passage of the Fair Housing Act in 1968. The social consequences of this this trend um, are the economical and cultural divides that already shape many neighborhoods. School segregation between the wealthiest families and others increased the concentration of resources in schools with high ratings and lead to further segregation in neighborhoods and in schools. The correlation between red schools and minority areas is also very substantial. The fact that schools are separating in the way that they are shows that there is still redlining occurring even in the ways that we wouldn't think it would be.
To bring some data into educational redlining, one example is in New Jersey, where schools in the 95th percentile of per-student funding spend thir- around $13,000 per student, whereas schools in the 5th percentile spend $8,000 per student. Through these stories and examples, we can see the way that redlining has truly impacted the world we see today. Our understanding of redlining has shown how our past determines the future.